You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Monica Bay. And I'm Bob Ambrogi. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore new legal technology and the people behind the tech. Here on Law Technology Now. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. This is your host, Bob Ambrogi. Today, we're going to be talking with Josh Becker, the CEO of Lex Machina. But before we do that, I want to just take a moment to thank the sponsor for today's program, Thomson Reuters. Demystifying artificial intelligence can be done in seven simple steps. AI will create change, but managing change doesn't just happen. Visit legalsolutions.com slash AI to learn more. Well, it's baseball season, so what better topic to talk about than Moneyball? Moneyball, of course, was the name of the book and the movie about how the Oakland A's, when they didn't have the money to build a powerhouse team, instead turned to analytics to do it. The Moneyball method that they pioneered is now widely used throughout baseball. You might say that uh, Lex Machina is the uh, Oakland A's of law. They really helped pioneer the use of analytics by lawyers in the legal field, a kind of Moneyball for lawyers, as some people have called it. So today we're going to talk to the CEO of Lex Machina, Josh Becker. Josh, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thanks for having me. And uh, this is kind of a double treat for me because I just got to interview you recently at Legal Tech in New York and uh, hear a little bit about what you've been up to. But uh, if you could just kind of start by telling our listeners who may not know what Lex Machina is, what it does. Sure. Well, your Moneyball analogy is very apt and it's funny. We are seeing lots and lots about analytics deepening its use in sports and around this time, which is something we used to talk about when we were going out and fundraising pitch for Lex Machina. So it's funny that you bring that up. But Well, there, there's a reason for that, because I, I was listening to an interview last night with the new Red Sox general manager, and they asked him about that. They asked, how are you going to use analytics? I don't even remember what he said, because I was thinking about this, but it's all over the place, as you say. Yeah, exactly, for sure. Yeah, Lex Machina helps lawyers with a couple of key use cases. We talk about win business, win cases. So it's using data to demonstrate your expertise and to compete now on data, not just on kind of reputation or you know, relationships maybe from the past, but to compete on data to showcase your expertise. And secondly, after winning business is winning cases. So using data to determine the best strategy in front of a judge, to size up your opposition, to understand how long it's going to take to do your budgeting, all that part of winning cases. So it's really about mining lots and lots of data. We have, um, I think, over a million cases in the database now across a number of different verticals, as we'll discuss, I'm sure. And mining that data and finding patterns that can be helpful to attorneys, right? Patterns of behavior, again, about opposition, about judges, about timing, about any number of things that can help lawyers do their job better. 
I want to talk about all of that, as you say, but I wonder if I could ask you to just step backward a little bit and tell us a little bit about how Lex Machina got started. I mean, this came out of Stanford Law School and its computer science department as well, right? Yeah, what well, was a little bit unique, having been in Silicon Valley for a long time, being on the venture capital side as well as on the entrepreneur side, I say very often you have cool technology that's looking for some problem to solve. Whereas here was very different. You actually had big companies, Microsoft, Apple, Intel, Genentech, Cisco, a bunch of others who were starting to get fed up with the rise of patent lawsuits, the very beginning of that rise that we saw in 2006, 2007, and turned to Stanford and said, there's got to be better data out there. You know, Tell me more about who this judge I'm in front of. What's their pattern of behavior? Who's this party suing me? What should my strategy be? And they collectively, along with a couple of law firms, actually gave $3 million to Stanford to build essentially a database of patent litigation. And they soon realized $3 million was a lot for an academic project, but really dropping the bucket for what they were trying to achieve because standard machine learning and natural language processing techniques didn't work. But because with Stanford, they're able to enlist Andrew Ng, who's now one of the top machine learning guys in the world, and Chris Manning, who even at the time was one of the top natural language processing guys in the world, and get their expertise eventually, because <laughs> it took a while to get them on board, but get their expertise devoted to this problem and developing a data classification system that works for law, right? That can read through and understand the legal language so that we can extract out the key information. Because really, this is mostly unstructured data, right? It's literally mining through lawsuits themselves and answers and complaints and this and that to kind of figure out, oh, okay, when was this motion filed? You know, when would the ruling happen? You know, what happened? Who was involved? You know, all of those pieces of information. And that was, that actually started, I think, way back in 2006, but then it went private uh, a couple of years later. And I think, if I have it right, you joined in 2011 as CEO. In the kind of end of 2010, really got going probably 2007, was spun out in 2010, and then I took over mid-2011, yeah. And you came from an interesting background yourself, and, and not really a background in legal technology, but certainly uh, a background as, as an entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about your background before you came to Lex Machina. Sure. I did do a JD MBA, but I did not practice because I graduated in 1999 from Stanford. And at that time, you know, if you recall back, it was dot-com mayhem, and there was so much going on. And I'd already been involved with one startup that actually we took public in 98. It was called Dice.com which is actually not a gambling site. I wish it was sometimes, but as a tech job board, essentially, is really what it was. So we had, we were building websites and then we wanted to become more of a technology company. And we, so we had various content for techies and then ultimately actually bought this small job board called Dice.com and that really became became the company. So I had background on that and I had worked on another company of my own that had, you know, let's call it moderate success. Um, it lasted for a while, then then died. but. So I had been pitching VC, so I was interested in the VC side of things. And so I got to eventually go work for a venture capital firm and then have my own venture capital firm. So, you know, I've got an interesting perspective. That helps me a lot with the legal tech accelerator that I really started for Lexus and, and help run that legal tech accelerator because I have experience both on the venture side and everything from angel side because I also helped start the Stanford Angels and Entrepreneurs. So everything from the angel side and the venture side to the entrepreneur side as well. So when I came across Lex Machina through the Stanford Angels and Entrepreneurs, I thought it was a really cool idea. And then they asked me to come on board as the interim CEO. And that was about seven years ago when I started that process. So what, what did you think was cool about it? What attracted you to it? 
Well, I, I thought it was, you know, really this fundamental concept that you laid out. It was the money ball notion, right? It was applying analytics to law. Many people thought we were crazy. <laughs> it's like, wait, you're going to go try to sell data to lawyers. Okay. That doesn't seem like a great business idea. And we knew it would take a while, but we had a real fervent belief in the mission, really, in bringing openness and transparency to the law and, and a feeling that this would work out over time. Like we felt like, you know, eventually all firms, you know, we're going to have to be adopting this kind of technology. And we knew it was just going to be able to figure out how can we get from here to there, right? Crossing the chasm, as they say, or the valley of death <laughs> it's in other ways. You know, you can get a few initial successes, a few early adopters like Jim Yoon at Wilson Sonsini, who's fantastic. But, you know, how do we get enough customers to get it to the point where we can really raise some money? Because that's wrong. This is all expensive to do, right? This is not cheap. This is not, you know, you need data, you need a pacer is obviously not free, and if you're trying to download every commercial case for the last 10 years, that costs a lot of money, let alone you know the team bringing on the engineering team and ultimately hiring Carl Harris, who's really now running, actually, Carl's really running the day-to-day operations now at, at Lexmark, and I'm starting to step back and take a broader view of legal analytics and do some thinking and writing about legal analytics as a whole and where's it going. So Carl's really stepping up, but to bring Carl and, and hire a whole team. So yeah, not not cheap to do. You know, there, I think we, we loved the original idea and we knew that eventually it would prevail, but the question mark was, could we eke along and raise enough money as we went to get there? So that probably is what brought you to 2015 when you were acquired by LexisNexis. What was it about LexisNexis that you thought then as CEO would be a good fit for Lex Machina? Yeah, well, first of all, the, there's the quality of the data, the quality and quantity of data. For us, we wanted to expand, right? As you know, and I think you maybe alluded to, we really started out just with patent litigation. Then we, we expanded our own to the rest of IP, but we really started out with just with patent. And to expand to other areas, we needed access to lots and lots of lawsuits, right? Millions, literally millions of lawsuits, which, as we said, cost a lot of money on PACER. So with Lexis, you know, they have a database. I think it's 150 times the size of Wikipedia, they say, and it's doubling every three years. It's, they've ingested 13 million documents daily. So I think it seems pretty clear that to, to me, and, and I haven't seen it disputed, that Lexis, I think, has the largest quantity of data and I think the highest quality as well. And that was really important to us. And then all the rest was just you know, making sure that they really understood analytics, that they were committed to analytics, and that they were you know, ready to execute on analytics. And we became convinced that, that they were. And that's why you know, ultimately it, it was a good fit. I'm not sure that everybody listening to this program necessarily even understands what analytics means as a concept, as a tool. Could you kind of give us the uh, analytics for dummies uh, version of what it is that you're doing? Sure. Well, you know, analytics is a broad term, as you say, right? And the other thing that gets thrown around, of course, now is AI, right? AI for law, AI, and what does AI mean, right? And so when I think about AI and is really the two disciplines, maybe, if that's the right word that I mentioned, machine learning and natural language processing. Machine learning is really the ability to mine through lots and lots of data and identify patterns, right? That's what machine learning is at the end of the day. So we're not telling you that you, Mr. or Mrs. Attorney, this is exactly how this case is going to turn out, but, and you certainly have the benefit of your experience, but no human, you know, can recall or read through, you know, the last thousand cases in the District of Delaware of this type and recall how many times the, the plaintiff was ruled for it, how many times the defendant was ruled for, 
and then be able to mentally slice down and look at just ANDA cases, which is a subset of patent cases, or to look at a certain kind of damages or a certain time frame, right? So machine learning is really that ability to identify those patterns. And again, as natural language processing, the other thing I mentioned is the ability to, to parse language, right? To recognize, oh, okay, well, if this term is mentioned in these number of words, right, it most likely means that this is a time when the motion was filed or, or whatever the case is. So that's a way to think about maybe from a technology standpoint, hopefully that's helpful. And analytics is just taking that data and interpreting it in various ways. So in the case of Lex Machina, as I mentioned, it's the two primary use cases I mentioned, right? Get the case, win the case, right? But there are other ones as well. You know, I've been out now in sort of my new sort of stepping back and thinking deeply about legal analytics. I've been talking to a lot of managing partners and going into law firms, meeting with senior folks. I had a couple of meetings yesterday. And it's really, you know, talking about these kind of use cases. But one that comes up is lateral hiring, right? Turns out our data is very helpful if you're a senior executive law firm and you're trying to do lateral hiring because now you're not relying just on a recruiter to even say like, which I think sometimes the best they can do is, okay, here's the firms the person worked at, right? We can actually say, here's all the cases they've done, right? Here's the clients they've had. Here's the work they've done for these clients. And yes, they, they have worked for Google, but not in the last, you know, 18 months, right? And in the last 18 months, Google's chosen these other five, you know, law firms or attorneys. And and so there's lots of data that's useful for, for that use case as well. So I'd say when we, we think about analytics, it can be a pretty broad term, but the way I think of it is really by those use cases, right? Again, in the case of Lex Machina, it's, it's the money ball. It's not the substance of law. It's really data about the players, about the judges, about the law firms, about the attorneys. In the case of like Ravel Law, which I know you know, they actually are going to the substance of law, right? So they're doing analytics on the published opinions themselves, right? So they're really parsing the language very deeply with lots of linguistic analysis on board to determine, you know, what's the best language to use in front of this judge, right? How can you kind of speak in the way that this judge can hear? And then there's also analytics you know, in other areas, like in contract analytics and things like that. So analytics itself is a broad term. So I, I try to, and hopefully that's helpful, you know, I try to think about it in terms of the use cases. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you said earlier in this interview that people thought you were crazy to try and sell data to lawyers, but really the way I think of it is you're not really, you're not selling data. I mean, the data was already there. The Pacer database has been sitting there for, uh, what, a couple of decades now. What you're really selling is sort of intelligence or insight into that data in a way that it was never available before. Yeah, I think because people would take advantage of Pacer, but they would do it to download one case, right? Or they'd say, yeah. you, know, you might ask your paralegal, hey, go to Pacer and download the last 20 cases in front of this judge, and then you just sit there and read through it, right? And that's the way that we actually we've thought about it in Lex Machia. We came up with a product called Cases Analyzer, right? It's like, okay, you, you know, we realized people were just printing out case lists and reading through. So we said, okay, we'll automatically let, you know, you pick a case list, you form your own case list, right? Cases involving Samsung as a plaintiff in the last two and a half years in the Eastern District of Texas, you know, with this law firm, whatever it is, and then we'll automatically parse through those cases you identified and generate some insights for you. Josh, stay with us. We're going to take a short break right now. We'll be back in uh, just a few moments to continue our discussion of analytics and law. Nowadays, there are as many definitions of artificial intelligence as there are companies trying to pitch AI solutions. So how do law firms know how and when to incorporate artificial intelligence? 
More and more, law firms are starting to leverage AI across a broad range of applications. Legal research, litigation strategy, e-discovery, self-help online legal services, dispute resolution models, and contract review and analysis. Visit LegalSolutions.com forward slash AI to see how Thomson Reuters is helping legal professionals like you understand the impact and opportunities of this revolutionary technology and how to use it to deliver your best work faster and more accurately than ever. Welcome back to Law Technology Now. This is Bob Ambrogi, and I'm speaking with Josh Becker, the CEO of Lex Machina. And uh, the last time I saw you was in New York at, at Legal Tech, and uh, you were uh, about to go off and deliver a keynote address on the topic of data-driven law practice. What do you mean by that? What are you, what are you talking about when you talk about data-driven law? Good question. I mean, that's to, to us, I think that's sort of the key phrase that we think about, right? The question is, are we replacing lawyers? Are lawyers going to be replaced? Are they, you know, just fundamentally changing law in some way? We say, no, you always have legal research and, and reasoning. What we're trying to do is help people make data-driven decisions, right? So if you're a lawyer practicing for many years, you may have some intuition about the way to go in a certain case. And now you can test that intuition versus the data, right? You can say, okay, I kind of, I think, or I've heard this judge is kind of behaves in the following way. Let, let me let me go through the data, right? And you may end up still making the same decision you were going to make before, or you might make a completely different decision, right? But now it's a data-driven decision. So that's the way that we think about it, right? It's sort of teeing up those data-driven insights. And I think, you know, you'd say Ravel is the same way, right? Teeing up those data-driven insights to help make better decisions. And I think, you know, lawyers that are now on board, you know, and are, are sort of deeply engaging with analytics are, are thinking about that. I'm, again, I'm just thinking back to a conversation I had with Jim Yoon the other day, is in the sense of, you know, engaging with a client around the data to help make the decision collectively now about which tack to take in a certain case. And I should say that Ravel, you've mentioned Ravel a couple of times, is a legal research uh, platform that was acquired, also acquired by LexisNexis. So you've talked a couple of times about the use cases. The, the, there's the litigation use case that you were just kind of alluding to in terms of uh, knowing how long a particular judge takes to handle a particular kind of case or what else? I mean, what are some of the other litigation scenarios for how you would use uh, analytics? Yeah, I think early case assessment, right? So from if you're a corporate customer or a law firm, you know, you know, think of it from the in-house side, a lawsuit comes in, right? You're trying to assess, okay, how serious is this? Um, how long is it likely to take? How much is it likely to cost? And which attorney should I use for this, right? And data helps, you know, our data particularly helps with each piece of that, right? And hopefully that's clear, but, you know, each piece of that decision, right? Which attorney, you know, maybe I have a stable of seven attorneys I or seven law firms I tend to use, you know, which one has the most experience in front of this judge and in this kind of case, or maybe there's some boutique out there that I can find that has a lot of great experience in this kind of matter in front of this judge. The timing analytics and everything we talked about. And same thing, the law firms now are thinking about it much the same way, right? A matter comes, they're trying to think, can I make money on this? Maybe it's a fixed fee, maybe it's not, but they're trying to think about how do I staff this case? How do I bid on it? How do I present our firm and myself in the best light? to win this case, and then together work out and really understanding the judge and do we even want to be in this district, right? Maybe we want to transfer. And that's yeah. another and great use case for data, right? The venue shopping use case. Yeah. And since you've 
been acquired by LexisNexis, you've been branching out. I mean, you started, as you said earlier, in intellectual property. If I've got my tally right here, you've now added uh, securities, antitrust, commercial litigation, employment, bankruptcy, and uh, product liability litigation. Are there others that I've missed there? And I know you're, you're continuing to build out into other areas, and there may have already been others that I've lost track of. But. In December, we launched a Chancery Court of Delaware. And we actually have, a, I think, a webcast today about that. I think Owen's doing one. And I just saw him last night. He's like, man, we've just, <laughs> we have so many amazing insights from the data here. Like, people have just been flying blind for so long with major, major, you know, a lot of money at stake, big cases in the Chancery Court of Delaware. And so we just launched that court in December, and then we'll have more this year. But yeah, I think you get the list pretty well, I think. So the other use case I just want to talk a little bit more about that you mentioned earlier is the marketing use case. And could you just expand on that a little bit to explain how analytics, how this docket analytics, data analytics can be used for a law firm in marketing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, ALM did a survey and they asked people who use legal analytics, is this helpful in demonstrating expertise? And actually 100% of the respondents said, uh, yes, it's helpful for demonstrating expertise. And again, if you just think about it that way, right, so they're responding to a case, they know, you know, the company, they know what district the lawsuit was filed in, they may know the judge. And now we have a chance to use data to say, first of all, you know, in the past, people might have you know, emailed around their firm, hey, who knows this judge? Who's got experience here in front of this judge, that, you know, in this firm? I was meeting with an attorney yesterday who was saying when he started practicing, they didn't even have that. They didn't have an intranet. So, like, they would literally just photocopy a article about the judge. <laughs> that was what they had to go on, you know. And so now you can, you know, you can use it to slice and dice data to say, hey, great, we don't think this, you know, we know this is the, this judge's tendencies. This is statistically how they've handled these kinds of cases. Here's what we believe the strategy should be based on that. And here's our experience that proves it. And And not only have we appeared in front of that judge, you could even go deeper sometimes and say, hey, you know, do you know, that we've got a 30% faster time to trial in front of this judge in these kinds of cases than other firms that you tend to work with, right? So you know that we have a, you know, a better success rate in front of this judge than other firms you tend to work with, right? So you're now you're using data, slicing dicing data to make you and your firm look as good as possible and lay out a strategy and, and hopefully win the business. So how does this change the practice of law going forward? I mean, where are we going to be What's going to be different about how lawyers are practicing over the next five or 10 years because of using analytics in their practices? Yeah, well, I think if you look, and there's been some good analysis done. McKinsey did a study, and then there was uh, Levy out of MIT and, and Remus out of UNC had another study. And we have a pie chart that I've been showing that looks at what percent of time that lawyers' activity you know, is on different tasks, right? And a lot of the 44%, I think, according to this, is actually on advising strategy, that kind of thing. That's obviously not going to get replaced, right? That's fundamental to what lawyers do. And, you know, about 26% of it is research and analysis. But there actually, there's some thought there might even be more time spent on that now. There's something called the rebound effect that we talked about on our panel, where they showed when they made light bulbs more efficient, people actually use more electricity because they would leave their lights on longer, right? And so because clients have an insatiable demand for information, right, they're going to, there's, you know, more and more analysis that's going to be done. So what I think is, it's just, this is going to be part of law. Like just, just as 
analytics is now part of baseball. Right now, every team has had to adopt, and they find other ways to compete. And that competition is is partly deeper analytics. So I was talking to one lawyer. His client has a technology that the Houston Astros used, which is you know you attach to your bat and determines bat speed and all these things and all kinds of data and additional data in real time on the players. So you know you'll continue to deepen in that and then just compete on your expertise, your knowledge, and your you know instincts and judgment really. So I think it will change to some extent. Right, you have I think people who adopt data will have an advantage earlier and and will flourish. But I think it just it sort of just becomes something like water. It's just part of the practice of law going forward. And so of course you know of course we would check the data, and um, it just becomes part of the the tools in the toolbox that you use to practice. I know. I, I think we're up against a time limit here with you, I, I, and I, I don't want to hold you, but I want to ask if you could just speak real quickly to the question of how does a law firm kind of go about budgeting for picking uh, an analytics tool? How, how do they, you know, as, as sort of consumers of analytics, how do they get started down this road? What do they need to know about buying analytics and budgeting for analytics? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I, mean, I know when we started, people said, well, you know, we don't have a budget for legal analytics, right? <laughs> like, where's the money going to come from? And, you know, on the other hand, you know, profits per partner at most big firms are, are, are doing quite all right. So there, you know, there is money there. So, so take it out of the partner's pockets, you're saying. Well, I didn't say exactly. <laughs> it's going to increase. I, should, I guess I should say it's going to, you spend, you invest a little, you'll, you'll make more, right? So it'll, it'll increase profits per partner in the, long, in the long run. But, but the point is that the money's there somewhere. But yeah, I mean, it's good to be, it's good to be thoughtful. And I think you have to feel like you have, you know, you can't just say, oh, I bought an analytics solution, right? You have to think about what the use cases are. So you want data that you can use in marketing, again, to get the case, right, to win business for your firm. You want data that's going to help you then win the case and understand the judge better and understand and do that that opinion analysis as well, the stuff I think that Ravel does so well. You're also going to look, want to look at analytics to mine your internal data, right? Hey, we've done a thousand licensing agreements for stage two pharma companies. Let's mine that our data to figure out, you know, what market is for this kind of clause. So I think you do have to look at it in a few different categories, but it's pretty easy to get going. I mean, you know, again for Lex Machina, it's just a it's an interface. You just it's sort of data as a service, you know. You know, that's what we say it's a partner tool. It's not something, you know, would you would you outsource a Google search? No. <laughs> you wouldn't say, you know, hey, go to the Google and look up, you know, this for me, right? You know, you would just do it. And I think that's what people should demand. And I think that's what, you know, hopefully this generation of analytics tools can provide is something that is a an easy interface and an easy thing for people to adopt into their workflow, right? Because at this point, it's really an adoption question and how do firms get deep penetration of these tools. And I think obviously the easier they are to use and the more that these firms allow themselves to be integrated into the workflow, it's going to be easier and easier for folks to adopt. We've been talking to Josh Becker, CEO of Lex Machina. That'll do it for this episode of Law Technology Now. On behalf of everybody at the Legal Talk Network, thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.